Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Happy New Year, baseball friends, and welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show, our first Monday mailbag of 2022. I'm Tim McMaster, along with Ken Rosenthal. Ken, certainly a quiet holiday season for Major League Baseball as the lockout rolls on. I hope you were able to, because of that, enjoy the holidays a little bit. Well, Tim, thank you. And yes, it's the quietest holiday season I think I've ever had. Now, usually I take off the week of Christmas simply because there is less activity but there's always something going on, so I'm kind of distracted and thinking about things always. But during the lockout, that hasn't been necessary because really there's been nothing going on outside of a few managerial hirings. So yes, it's been restful, but I know a lot of fans are restless about what is going on. And I guess we should start off talking about the question on everyone's minds, which is when is the lockout going to end? Now, if you've been reading not just our accounts, but pretty much all accounts about the baseball labor dispute, you know that no one has predicted this will end any time before mid-January, probably late January. And the reason for that is simply there's no urgency. There's no clock ticking saying, okay, spring training is going to start, free agency has to start on X date, we've got to get going. No, that hasn't happened yet. Now, when does that happen? I would say a deal would be necessary by around February 1st to February 5th to start spring training on time because you're going to need at least that 10 to two, 10 day to two week period to get all the free agents signed, to get everything going. And even if you don't start on February 15th with spring training, as long as you start probably by March 1st, it's enough time. You often say that, or people often say that spring training You really don't need six weeks. The pitchers need it, but the players, the position players certainly do not need that length of time. So we could get away with probably a one-month spring training. That most likely would not be a problem. But to get back to the original point, as we sit here on January 4th, there's no urgency. There's no real need to strike a deal right now. So With that, we can begin, and I'm sorry that the answer isn't better, but that's been the reality from the very beginning, that this thing was not likely to end anytime quickly. Hopefully, the New Year's resolution for both the owners and the players is to get a deal done, right? Just get get a deal done. A lot of New Year's resolutions get broken, though, Tim, as we both know. But yes, (laughs) that should be the resolution for both sides. All right, let's get into the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. 
If you want to get involved in the mailbag next time around, we'll be back with another mailbag in a couple of weeks. You can call us. We love it when you call. Get your voice on as a mail as a uh, voicemail. 646-543-7072 is the number to do that. You can also just email us, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. That's the letter T, the letter A, baseballshow at gmail.com. All right, Ken, there's, there's actually only one question in the mailbag about the actual lockout. We might as well start there. It's from Sean. He says, it's been over a month since the lockout began. And if anything, it seems like it has stopped negotiations rather than pushing them forward. Would MLB have been better off not locking out the players and continuing to negotiate under the previous CBA? Sean, this is a really good question, and a lot of fans have asked this kind of question in recent weeks. Now, if you remember, the night the lockout began, what did the commissioner, Rob Manfred, say? He said the idea was to jumpstart the negotiations. Now, no one believed that the lockout would actually jumpstart the negotiations, and sure enough, that has not happened. But as Evan Drellick wrote in his written mailbag, we have this one as a voice mailbag, and we have Evan's written mailbag recently. It was very informative about the lockout. He said what this was about, and he had written this before as well. What a lockout is about, what a strike is about, is ultimately leverage and control. And the reason the owners locked out the players was to gain that measure of leverage and control. They did not want to wait continue to negotiate, and then in spring training have the players go out on strike. They wanted to take control of this thing themselves, and that is the mechanism, a lockout, for which they could do it. Now, people can say, and people have asked, rightly so, well, why not just continue negotiating, then lock them out, the players, on, say, January 15th? That way you could continue to sign free agents, the offseason would have continued on course, etc., and then you could have reached the decision later. Well, as Evan pointed out, the way the CBA is written, it gets a little bit complicated legally. For instance, without a collective bargaining agreement in place, and remember, it expired on midnight December 1st, then the luxury tax would have disappeared. So it would have complicated free agency. It would have kind of created a confusing, chaotic situation. So that is why the lockout began when it did. You can certainly question Manfred for making that comment that it was going to jumpstart the negotiations, that that was the intent when it appears that neither side took that idea seriously. So here we are, and as I said, it's going to take some time still before we get this thing going, but the lockout, a strike, it's a mechanism. It's a mechanism to exert leverage. That is ultimately what the owners chose to do here. And we will see when they get back to the table, hopefully sometime soon, if they're going to get something done in the next month or so. All right, next question, Shane Dickinson. He says, hey, Tim and Ken, love the show. I'm a Cubs fan who's curious what their next move is going to be. Getting Stroman was awesome, but it also makes it seem like there were more for them to do. I've heard rumors of Correa and the Cubs talking before the lockout and was curious on if a deal gets done there, would Correa accept something less than 10 years? Also curious if the Cubs and Rays make sense as trade partners for Kiermaier. I'm okay with this as long as the Cubs can get glass now in the deal. Thanks for all you do and keeping us informed throughout the entire year. Okay, there's a lot to unpack here and there's good questions. Correa to the Cubs has been something at least fans have talked about, particularly since the Stroman signing. Because the Stroman signing certainly signaled, hey, the Cubs aren't conceding 2022. They're going to 
go about it maybe a little bit differently, sign some free agents to shorter deals and go about it in that way. Shorter deals. And that's the key phrase here. If indeed the Cubs are going to take that course, I don't expect that they're going to get Correa done. And I know fans are going to think, well, maybe Correa will sign for shorter because this has lingered and now he's going to be available and a lot of the bigger free agents have signed. It's going to be a mad rush with all the free agents. But I don't see that happening. And I don't see Carlos Correa having his price drop simply because there was a lockout, simply because he did not sign before December 1st. He remains what he was entering the offseason, the best available free agent on the market because of his age, because of what he's accomplished, all of that. I still think he's getting 10 years. I still think he's getting $300 million plus, and I believe he still might get over Corey Seager. It's going to take, obviously, a team to do that and jump to the four, and it's difficult to identify which team that might be. The Cubs could be that team based on financial commitments going forward. They don't have a whole lot. And in theory, you could say, you know what? We're going to grab Carlos Correa and we're going to make him the centerpiece of our next great Cubs team, right? That's all they've been talking about. How are we going to build the next great Cubs team? But it certainly has not appeared that they're in that mode. As Sahad of Sharma and Patrick Mooney have written, it doesn't appear that they're in an aggressive kind of situation where they're going to be in the middle of bidding wars. So I still expect Correa to get the long deal. I still expect him to have opt-outs in that deal. I don't necessarily expect it to be with the Cubs. Though I must say, given their financial situation, or should I say where they are with regard to future payrolls, I would not be shocked if that happened. It just doesn't seem to be the course they're on now. I can see them signing a whole bunch of guys to shorter deals, kind of like the 2013 Red Sox, if you go back to that, and then going about it that way, trying to stay competitive while building up the farm and all of that. Remember, Correa would cost the Cubs at least, not necessarily other teams, but the Cubs a second-round pick or their second-highest pick. That should not be a deterrent when you're signing Carlos Correa, but if you're the Cubs and you're trying to rebuild through the farm, it's a little bit contradictory, though, I don't know, a 27-year-old free agent, I think. I take him over a second round pick. It's funny you went, you brought up 2013 in the Red Sox because that that's the blueprint for doing that, right? The short term kind of medium deals. Uh, but I remember that offseason Red Sox fans being furious with the way the Red Sox had approached things and getting guys like Shane Victorino and, and other guys. And then they went and won the World Series. <laughs> So, right. Well, that so. happens. <laughs> we don't always know everything here on the outside. And certainly things in baseball occur every season that surprise us. And people have also asked, can the Cubs be a surprise team if they take this course that we just discussed, the 2000 Red, 2013 Red Sox blueprint? Yes, because the NL Central is not that strong a right. division. So it's going to be really interesting to see how they go about this the rest of the way. All right, a Hall of Fame question now, and we'll probably get more of these as we get closer. We're about three weeks out from the announcement, so more and more votes are going to be trickling in. This one from Fermin Castaneda, and has to do with Omar Vizquel. 
Hi, Ken and Tim. First of all, Happy New Year. Best of wishes to you both. This past week, Omar Vizquel communicated that his divorce was settled in a court of law and the allegations of the supposed abuse from his now ex-wife were dismissed by the judge. First, since you broke, this is to you, Ken. First, since you broke the news of the alleged abuses, are you planning on writing a follow-up story with his side since he couldn't defend himself while the case was open? And then secondly, if he's also proven innocent from the other trial, that's the more recent news about the the Bat Boy situation, would that be enough to clear his name and regain momentum towards the Hall of Fame? For me, I appreciate the question, and others have asked it on Twitter as well. Is there going to be a follow-up story? Not at this time, and I'll address why right now. What happened, I believe it was last week, is that Omar Vizquel issued a statement. His divorce was finalized in Arizona, and in the statement he said, the supposed domestic violence accusations put forth by my now ex-wife, Blanca Garcia, were disregarded by the judge due to lack of evidence or any supporting evidence. After waiting for a year and a half for this to be settled, I can freely say that Blanca Garcia intentionally and irresponsibly used my name and my persona in a defamatory manner, but that her allegations were ultimately denied and dismissed. I re Iterate wholeheartedly what I have said from the beginning. Blanca Garcia was not a victim of domestic violence during any of the time we were married. Her defamatory accusations were merely scandals. She played out on social media and they did not materialize because they were not true in any way, shape, or form. Okay, again, that is a statement from Omar Vizquel. It is not quoting anything from the court documents that were released and available after the divorce was settled or ruled on by the judge. The divorce documents said nothing of that kind. They did not refer to any domestic violence allegations, did not dispute that they took place. And I would, again, ask people to read our initial report. While it's Vizquel saying he's vindicated, our initial report was based on firsthand sources, eyewitnesses, public records. We stand by that story. Katie Strang and I wrote it, and we stand by it. Also, keep in mind... MLB investigation of Vizquel is ongoing and active, and as Fermin mentioned in his question, there is ongoing litigation against Vizquel involving allegations of sexual abuse of a young bat boy that was working for the Birmingham Barons when Vizquel was the manager of that team. So again, this is Omar's word, his statement, but the actual court record does not have anything along these lines. It does not refer to domestic violence. It is a document that basically finalizes the divorce. That's it. So as we said, as I just said, we stand by the story. Obviously, if further information becomes available down the line, particularly with the Bat Boy case, it might change the Hall of Fame picture for some voters. But as I wrote, I changed my vote last year. I voted for Vizquel. About, I don't know, three weeks after we wrote that story, I felt horribly about it. It was a mistake, in my view. And this year, I did not vote for him because of all these things that were going on around him. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see just the vote totals that come in for Vizquel and how they they are impacted overall by everything that's gone on since last year when they were obviously not high anyway. Uh, All right, next question um, at the minor league level. This one from Dayton Koch. He says, some former minor league clubs are suing Major League Baseball. What are your thoughts on this with them saying MLB violated the antitrust exemption? What potential effect could this have if they were to win the case against Major League Baseball? 
Well, you hear this from time to time about Major League Baseball's antitrust exemption coming into question. And it is the only major sport that has an antitrust exemption, which is curious in its own right. And if I were one of the other major sports, I would say that's not really fair. And it's not really fair, but it's historically consistent with what has gone on here. It's the way it's been. So every so often you'll hear people in Congress, fans, minor league officials perhaps in this case saying we're going to challenge the antitrust exemption in some fashion. It came up, if you remember, some lawmakers brought this up after MLB pulled the All-Star game out of Atlanta. As far as I know, that went nowhere. Now, the question, and it's a good one, is what would happen if the exemption ultimately was lifted? Well, what does the exemption do? And it does a few things. And I refer to uh, an article by Michael McCann of Sportico, who went on about this at some point recently. He said the exemption empowers and enables the league and the teams to conspire in ways that might otherwise run afoul of antitrust law. Most notably for fans, that would be with regard to the movement of franchises. The antitrust exemption allows baseball, Major League Baseball, to have greater control over movement than it would otherwise. Also, with regard to minor leaguers, and this is what's more relevant in this particular case in question, it enables baseball to cap the minor league salaries, essentially engage in price fixing because they have this exemption from antitrust law. So that would go away too. And certainly this challenge or this idea of a challenge of the exemption has come up from time to time, but I don't see it changing. Congress has a lot bigger things to worry about, as we all know. As we continue with the status quo, it is certainly fair to say that the NBA, the NHL, the NFL, they have far narrower immunity from antitrust kinds of charges than baseball does. Baseball has an advantage and always has had an advantage in this regard. And at this point, it's kind of ridiculous that it has this advantage, but good for MLB. It does. It is wild. It started, obviously, when baseball was the thing, the national pastime, all of that. And it's just stood the, the test of time. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, all right. Next question. We got a couple kind of legally ones here. This one from Tad Regan says, thanks for taking the time to read my email. I live in Ireland and this whole Marcelo Zuna case has confused me. Why did Major League Baseball do their own investigation here and in the rest of Europe? This is unheard of. Why is it not left to the authorities to deal with? This is a fair question. And a lot of fans raise this all the time. Why does baseball have its own policy? And the reason is because The standard that a private corporation uses for its employees is not necessarily the same standard that you would see in a criminal and civil case. If you're a private employer, you might want to discipline an employee for something that is not necessarily found to be illegal in court. And with domestic violence, it's a particularly valid way to go about it because, as we know, it is very difficult to prove in many cases an allegation of domestic violence for any number of reasons. So 
That is why baseball conducts its own investigations and implemented its own policy several years back. And by and large, it's been a successful policy and there has been discipline administered. And it seems to me, I can't say this is true in every case and I can't say it solved any kind of problem, but baseball has taken effective action against certain players. Now, the I'm sorry, the Azuna case is a little bit curious to a lot of people, including myself, just the way it all played out. On May 29th, he was charged. And at that point, he was on the injured list. And he remained on the injured list for, I believe, the rest of the season. Now, on September 10th, he was placed on paid administrative leave. Now, what administrative leave is, and we've seen this in a number of the domestic violence cases, is a situation where the player, yes, continues to get paid. And also, there is no judgment passed on whether he is innocent or guilty. He's simply placed on this leave where the investigation can continue to go on. At the time, he agreed to, in a court, a three- to six-month domestic violence intervention program, and then ultimately he was ordered to undergo 200 hours of community service, refrain from illegal drugs, avoid contact with his wife, but that was it. The charges essentially, as I understand it, were dropped. Ultimately, Baseball issued a suspension on November 29th. The suspension was retroactive to the administrative leave period, which was a span of 20 games. So he effectively served that time. The suspension is now over, effectively. He can play on opening day. A couple of days after that suspension was announced, TMZ came out with a video in which he is shown Azuna to be actively choking his wife. You can go find it online. It was only a few seconds, but... It was clear on the video, and the officer said, yes, he's actively choking her. He said that to a colleague, and it certainly looked a lot worse than what ultimately was found by the court and even Major League Baseball. But as far as I know, the ruling stands. It's not going to change. He served the 20 games. He'll be active opening day. But getting back to the original question, and I know this is really confusing. The reason baseball, Major League Baseball, and other professional sports leagues conduct their own investigations is because the court system does not always provide an adequate outcome in the eyes of, in this case, this particular private employer. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That sums it up. All right. Um, this one from Aaron Ross. There doesn't seem to be any info anywhere on what might happen with Trevor Bauer. That being said, I can't imagine him being back in a Dodger uniform next season. If he wasn't charged criminally or suspended, but the Dodgers chose to release him, would his salary count towards the luxury tax threshold? Aaron, good question, and let me answer it in a couple of different ways. If he is suspended, then yes, the luxury tax charge against the Dodgers would not exist because he would not be getting paid. So a suspension is unpaid. He has been on administrative leave as well. But once he is suspended, I do expect he will be suspended. It will be retroactive. And who knows how long it will ultimately go on, if it will stretch into the 2022 season or not. Now, that is something we know that when he is suspended, yes, they get the break on the luxury tax. If he is released following suspension, okay, let's say just for the sake of discussion, he serves a suspension that goes into, I don't know, May of 2022, and then the Dodgers must make a decision. Yes, they would face a luxury tax charge if he is released, as any player, or I'm sorry, as any team would, if they release a player. When you release a player, he's under contract, you have to pay off the contract, the luxury tax charge counts. 
Now, what we don't know, obviously, is if the luxury tax system will remain in place. I do expect it to remain in place, but this is one of the many outstanding questions with the Bauer situation. What will the Dodgers do? How will that affect their payroll, their luxury tax payroll? Will Bauer file a grievance if indeed he is released? All of these things are in play. He will possibly file a grievance if he's suspended as well. So there is a lot still that must play out here. But to answer your question, if he's released and if there's a luxury tax system in place, yes, the Dodgers face a charge on that. I do not expect him to play for the Dodgers again. And I do expect this to become an issue at some point. All right, we got one last question. It's from Dan Zerby, who seems to have a good question every time we do this mailbag. Uh, this one's from Dan. It says, hey, Ken, I've been doing a little personal project chronicling my top 10 favorite bigger than baseball moments, moments that really make you step back and realize that what a great impact a children's game can have on society and the lives of individuals. Moments like D. Gordon's home run after the Jose Fernandez tragedy, Hank Aaron's record-breaking homer, or bittersweet speeches like the one made in Cooperstown by Brandy Holiday, and of course, the Lou Gehrig's. There are things that have sucked me into baseball, so my question to you is, what are some of your favorite moments in this category? Or better yet, is there perhaps a moment like this that sticks out to you that you had the honor of covering in person? What sticks out to you about that experience? Thanks again. Hope you have a wonderful holiday season. You're right, Tim. Dan does ask good questions, and this is another one. And I've got an easy answer for me, and I've talked about this from time to time, that this moment is the highlight of my career and will always be the highlight of my career, I expect, even though I have covered many things since that I guess you might even consider bigger moments. And the moment I'm talking about is the night that Cal Ripken broke the consecutive games record with the Orioles in September of 1995. At the time, I was a columnist for the Baltimore Sun. So clearly at that time, there was a lot of excitement about the Ripken record, and as I've written and talked about, I was a relatively young columnist. I was, let's see, just about to turn 33, and I felt a lot of pressure. At that time, <laughs> it was a little different than today. There was no internet, and writers from all over the country had gathered in Baltimore to chronicle this historic event the president was there. The vice president was there. Clinton and Gore. Joe DiMaggio was there. And really the eyes of the baseball world and even the sports world were on Camden Yards that night. And all of my peers who would not normally read me because there was no internet were there that night and they were going to read me. So just from that personal perspective, yes, that is why it stands out. But the question you're asking is about bigger than life moments. And this was one of those moments. And actually, I wrote about it in my column that night, how it meant so much to the city of Baltimore, which always fashioned itself as a working class kind of place. It meant a lot to the country at the time because baseball, remember, was coming off the 94-95 strike and was trying to reestablish itself. And the eyes of the country were on this moment. And country was kind of falling in love with the sport again and for that reason it meant a lot to baseball and as i said from a national perspective just the fact that the president and vice president were at one sporting event together was just an amazing thing i know it was in baltimore not far from washington but the night proceeded 
as much as we anticipated it because we all knew it was coming. This was a countdown in a way that nobody could have anticipated with, remember, the victory lap and the tears and everything that went on. And it was just a really special night. So I've since gone on, obviously, to Fox and covered a lot of things for Fox television that I would put up with anything, right? But nothing really compares to that night. And I don't expect anything ever to compare to that night. It meant so much to me and to so many people that it just stands out singular. Now, some of those moments you mentioned, Dan, also really were quite special. And the D. Gordon home run, it probably doesn't get as much attention as some of the others simply because it's the Marlins and they weren't that prominent a team, even though Jose Fernandez certainly was a prominent pitcher. But, man, that was one of the most incredibly emotional things I've ever seen in baseball. And it's something that I will remember. But... Again, if you're asking me personally, ones I've witnessed, it's the Ripken night and always will be. I love that he brought up the D. Gordon one because you're right. People, I don't think people think of that one. But, man, that, him running around the bases with the tears flowing, it was just one of the most emotional things I've seen in baseball for sure. Um, all right, but that, that's the end of the questions. Great ones, as always. We really appreciate you getting them in. Uh, if you want to be a part of the next mailbag, again, you can call us, 646 646- Five four three seven zero seven two, or you can use the email tabaseballshow at gmail.com. Keep coming back to the Athletic Baseball Show all week long. We'll have an episode out later this week as well. We're in off-season mode still, so a couple of episodes a week instead of four or five a week like we hit in the regular season, but we'll keep you up to date on what's going on with the lockout and everything around the game of baseball. If you want to subscribe to The Athletic, you can do that. You can save 33% off an annual subscription. Go to theathletic.com slash baseball show for that. Again, Ken, Happy New Year to you. I'm Tim McMaster. He's Ken Rosenthal. We'll catch up with everybody soon.